Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. If you like what you hear today, please add a rating and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast! Today, I'm really excited to have Dr. James Fadiman on the podcast. James is an American psychologist and writer known for his extensive work in the field of psychedelic research. He co-founded, along with Robert Frager, the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, which later became Sophia University, where he was a lecturer in psychedelic studies. Fadiman is author of the book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, Safe, Therapeutic, and Sacred Journeys. Dude, thank you so much for chatting with me today. <laughs> Very happy to be with you. I've never referred to one of my guests as a dude before, but it somehow felt appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you are um, such a legend in the field, one of the founders of transpersonal psychology. Right there, you know, late 60s. So there was a time when psychedelic research was respected. Is that right? There was a time when LSD was the most researched psychiatric drug in the world. And what happened? And when I first entered the field in the late 60s, I wrote Sandoz and said, is there any research? I got two volumes, only of abstracts. So yes, it was quite respectable. (laughs) Well, why don't we uh, trace your history a little bit? Why did you decide to get into that topic? And, you know, like, where did you go to college? What, you know, what were some of these moments in your life where you got (laughs) really, you're like, this is what I want to study? Sure. I was a Harvard undergraduate. And I had a a charming and somewhat neurotic professor named Richard Alpert. And my junior summer, I worked with him at Stanford on research about children and various other things. And he had one undergraduate, me, and one graduate student, Ralph Metzner, and nothing about psychedelics for any of us. And I graduated and was uh, living and working in Paris. And Richard came over and said, the greatest thing in the world has happened to me, and I want to share it with you. Oh, wow. And that's how I became interested in psychedelics. I thought you were going to say that you, your teacher, your professor was Tim Leary. (laughs) No, never, never really connected with Tim, worked with Richard, and then went to Stanford for graduate school and worked off campus with a group. Uh, called the International Foundation for Advanced Study, which was doing clinical research using higher-dose psychedelics and did some publications which Stanford was nervous about and did probably the only PhD 
on the effectiveness of psychedelic therapy that's been done for that was done for decades because the US government then said we don't want to know any more about this we are shutting down in the same day over 60 research projects do you know what the what the catalyst there was do like why did they feel that way all of a sudden <laughs> <laughs> well by that time psychedelics had escaped the laboratory and were part of the the kind of hippie cultural subculture and that subculture did not appreciate um, much of what the United States was doing, particularly the Vietnam War. So here were people who were against the establishment, who didn't like much of capitalism and uh, racism and a few other things. And the government had no idea what to do. And it is my theory, and this is my fantasy, that they were sitting around saying, how can we stop the spread of these psychedelics that make children not respect their parents and not want to go? and kill strangers in a country they've never heard of. Right. And someone said, well, we can stop research. That's something. And someone else in the room said, that's an intelligent idea. And they stopped all research. When you read the CIA experiments in this area, which were, by the way, really bad research, it makes sense. The answer is there's no, there's no good reason. And their politics, as we all know, transcends science and transcends evidence when it wishes to. Well, the whole, yeah. the whole notion that psychology would study healthy personality yeah. for reasons that, that seem absurd in retrospect, so a surprise was something that needed to be argued about. It's as if you were saying, well, I want to study humanity, but I only want to study a couple of percent of them and then generalize, right. rather than why don't I study everybody and probably learn more. Yeah, so it was like that was a revolutionary idea at the time, and you knew him. And so he, I want to hear more about this moment where he's like, "Dude, I'm sure you didn't say dude." Um, he's like, <laughs> "Right? Did people call you Jim?" Yes. Should I call you Jim? Okay, Jim. I'm Alport right now. Jim. Oh my gosh, I have to tell you about this experience <laughs> that happened to me. Oh my, OMG. Now, what is it about the psychedelic experience that is so transformative for people? Like, what is it about, man? Can you tell me? Well, though I prefer that everyone should read the volume by Aldous Huxley on his first masculine experience, which has been consistently selling ever since, I'll take it in a couple of sentences. It expands your worldview, and it makes self-evident that we are interdependent not only on one another, but on the rest of the natural world. Again, this is now common sense that ecology says we actually live in a habitat, not in a city, and that it turns out that people have more inherent goodness in common than any other trait. So it, it changes the way you look at relationships. It changes the way you look at your own relationship to nature. It changes the way you look at self-imposed scientific limitations on certain kinds of research. So it's a career changer for those of us who were being professional psychologists. But for most people, it makes them more optimistic about the overall wonder and beauty of the world and more aware of it. That's probably pretty enticing if you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredibly enticing. And you hear similar descriptions among people who are expert meditators as well. The fact is that this particular part of consciousness, think of it as another band on the FM radio, but way near the top, repeated by mystics in every tradition I've ever been able to discover, by serious meditators, by people who are involved in trance uh, behavior. Lots of ways people have approached this same area, and their reports are all similar. So the question becomes then, what is the best way for someone born in the West in the 20th century to have access to these spiritual kind of truths in a way that makes sense for them. Yeah, because these kind of experiences can certainly be divorced from beliefs or religion. Remember, beliefs are things that you are, that you don't know. Right. Nobody says, I have a belief in gravity. Yeah, good point. Or in sunset or in cheesecake. <laughs> People say, I have experience. In the spiritual kind of vocabulary, at least, of one system, 
belief is a lower version than knowledge. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of religious individuals would counter that and say, well, they're just accessing a different truth, as though there are, there are multiple yeah. truths. Yeah. Well, there are multiple truths because truths come through a filter called us. Yeah. So that, you know, it's a commonplace in, in uh, first-year psychology to say, you don't see the same red that I see when we say the word red. And while that's true, we both see something close enough right. so that we can converse really pretty intimately about it. The yeah. psychedelic people and transpersonal psych what transpersonal psychology did is say, these different religious traditions, when you get back to the initial experiences, simply look like variations on a theme. They don't look like genuine opposition differences. Yeah, you know, this it's interesting because we're going to so go into Abraham Maslow right now talking about Maslow's ideas because he really believed self-actualized individuals, self, people who reach self-actualization, see reality more clearly than everyone else. They kind of, he describes as though they take off their, like a clouded lens and kind of put on a... a yeah, they take off some of their individual preconceptions. Right. You know, like, I'm short, short people are really good. I'm not short... These short people are not really good, you know, and I'm making it obvious and dumb. Right. But it's just as true when someone says, well, you're from a religious tradition that since I know nothing about, probably is not as good as mine. Right. But, but there's multiple ways of getting to that same thing that psychedelics maybe like induces it, but there are other spiritual practices that can get us in that mental state. Is that right? Oh, well, there are other practices. I mean, yeah. I would hardly say taking a psychedelic and going to a, a U2 concert is a spiritual practice. Right. But there's, a, there's an English, English mystic, Evelyn Underhill, who said, if God is infinite, he can be approached in an infinite number of ways. And it's the, the image of if your goal is to get to the mountaintop, really any place you start, as long as you're going towards up, is probably a possible method. It's so interesting that you said the word infinite. That's a, a common theme in a lot of these kinds of discussions. Can I read a quote? Uh, I'm not going to tell you who said this quote, and you're going to have to guess who said it. One problem, sure. one problem with science, and one reason that people who look beyond science are suspicious of it, is that it is not very well taken account of the infinite. Therefore, it's inherently less of a system than some of these other systems. Who said that? <laughs> oh, I could think of a thousand people, <laughs> but I hope it was Maslow. Guess what? It was you. What? It was you. Nin <laughs> sitting right next to Maslow, April 13th, 1970. Age, oh, that's, age, that's age 29, uh, Jim Fadiman. I wanted to surprise you with some quotes. <laughs> from uh, I agree. That, that is wonderfully surprising. And, and as you notice, it's, it's a very gentle reproof. That, that science basically, and I would now say it from a... An older perspective, science does exactly what science does, and it says we're not going to look into certain areas yeah. because our basic assumptions say they don't exist, and that seems perfectly respectable to me. You know, just as astronomy says, I don't really look into biological organisms because that's not what astronomy is is for. So my feeling now is that. You know, I, I won't say some of my best friends are scientists, or we have one lawyer who's a scientist, <laughs> but that different ways of knowing demand different tools. Just as if one is being a therapist and working on dream analysis, one does not apply a double-blind laboratory methods because it's just totally inappropriate. So it's a matter often, and I think Maslow said this very nicely when he said if your only tool is a hammer. That's right. Then every problem becomes a nail. Everything looks like a nail. That's right. So, so the tools of science are good for what science is good for. It's funny because, do you know what Maslow, how he responded to you? He said, but science is beginning <laughs> to do that. So he defended science. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he loved science. He did. He loved science. But you and him got into this whole thing about um, astrology. Yeah. But of course, yeah. those of us who'd had psychedelic experience yeah. were saying science is fine. Yeah. And the reason science doesn't touch religion except to say bad words about it is because it really doesn't have 
the tools. It doesn't know how to approach those kinds of experiences. And now we have neuroscience that says, I know how to approach those experiences. You tell me, you know, you get into a blissful state in which your whole being is filled with light and love, and I will show you what parts of your brains light up. How do you feel about that? And my feeling is, how charming. (laughs) Kind of like having a little Christmas card, and when you open it, some little light twinkle on a tree, and you think that's charming, but you don't think it's explained Christmas. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't really show us what the experience is like. Yeah, Right. It shows us what part of the brain lights up when they're when there are various things. And that's, that's lovely and may even have practical application. But it is, it is not very helpful when you're trying to, to look at the nature of consciousness. Sure. It doesn't mean that these scientific methods can't be developed, though. Um, my colleague, David Yadin, is doing some great work to try to have people report as, in as much detail as they can on like all experiences and self-transcendent experiences. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, scientific method. See, Tyler Method says, how can I find out more about this? And then you go back to your toolbox, and it's like those wonderful boxes you get at, at a hardware store that have 64 different kinds of screwdrivers, three of which you will use a lot, and the others maybe you'll use once or twice in your life, but that's really cool that you have them. Yeah. So scientific method is saying, I don't know something. How can I move towards knowing more about it? Science. Western materialistic science says that, except it says, however, I don't want to look at certain things because since I know they don't exist, I don't want to look. And that really goes back to Galileo with the theologians where he says, look, look at Saturn. It's got these things rolling around it. And they say, I don't want to look because it can't. Hmm. So things have actually not changed, except now the scientists are more sounding more like the theologians. The theologians aren't sounding more like scientists, though. (laughs) Well, (laughs) some of them are. The Dalai Lama is. Actually, that's a really good point. Actually, there are there are there are a couple exceptions. (laughs) And when he what he says, and it's really remarkable, he says, if science can disprove some of the basic tenets of Buddhism, then we will drop those tenets. I think that's a remarkable statement coming. Which is absolutely pure science. Yeah, it is. And it's a really remarkable statement. So do you still believe in astrology? Because (laughs) I don't know that I ever did. (laughs) There's this whole fascinating exchange. I'm I'm just obsessed with this this meeting. I want you to take me back here. Take me back to April 13th, 1970, on the second interdisciplinary conference on the voluntary control of internal states held in Council Grove, Kansas. Do you have any ah, memory okay, of this? Okay. Do you have now a memory of where this? we are? Yes. <laughs> yes. Stanley Krippner was there. Tart was there. Yep. Maslow yep. was there. Robert Orenstein. Do you know who else was there. there? Do you know who else was there? Weil, the doctor. Weil. Oh, Andy. Yeah, Andy Weil. Yes, Andy you and Weil. him were probably similar ages right. at the time. Yeah. Like, paint me a picture. Oh, of I'm the, so what glad. This looks like. Yeah. Well, you have to get that all of us West Coast and East Coast people are now in the middle of Kansas. Okay. And among the things I recall was the meals were white bread, white potatoes, white dessert, and two other starches. So we were all a little culture shocked by eating strange foreign food. That's funny. And we were also all living together in little dormitories. So there was a great deal of discussion off the record in the evening between us. And we were all young and many of us remained very good friends forever. And Maslow was, again, one of our heroes because he had really already taken the first steps and he came up to a point. And there was a point in which we were trying to get him to acknowledge the reality of what would be called transpersonal states. And he was trying very hard, but it was hard for him. And what I say to people is, if you look at the distance Maslow came in his career, where he started with wire monkeys and cloth monkeys with Harlow, and how far he came. The fact that he did not come that last few inches, and we did, does not make us larger. It just makes us more in debt to what, how far he took it. Well, you said he didn't go there, but he does, you know, right around that time. I mean, that was only a couple months before he passed away suddenly, that meeting. I mean, it's what a remarkable right. time in history to 
for all these stars to align in one place. I would have given a lot of money to be a fly on that wall in that meeting. But he does, <laughs> he does have published things saying the last year or two of his life saying that there's now seems to be a fourth force. He seemed to be promoting right. the, a fourth force. He, he seemed to be a promoting. No, he, he promoted the fourth force, which Tony Sudich had, right. had said, we're going in this direction. Right. And we're fought. We have in your writings enough to go on. Yeah. But he was always concerned um, on that flight the flight to Kansas. I was actually sitting with him. No way. And there were two incidents. No way. Wait, hold on. Let me just two like, process that. You were on the airplane with Maslow on the way to that? Well, somebody had to sit next to him. He's just a human being. <laughs> it wasn't my fault. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm going to get over that now. Okay, go on. Two things. Okay. Two things. <laughs> and two things happened. One is, as you know, he wrote about peak experience. Yeah. But he also said in his older life that he had what he called a plateau experience. Yes, that's what he was which really is you, And plateau is you get up to a certain height, but then it's flat for a long period of time. So it's a longer experience. And I watched him have one. And we talked about it later because we had a, an attractive stewardess. And Maslow looked at her, appreciated her as a nice, attractive young woman, and then began to, to inside himself, abstract that from this nice young woman to nice young women to beautiful women to women to the feminine. And I watched him and he just kind of went back inside himself and was there was a, a smile. And then after a while, he came out and, and we talked about it, that he'd had a peak experience, that he'd gone from the very individual to um, probably what the Jungians would have called the archetype. So that was one incident on that flight. The other incident is, I don't recall the book, but there was a footnote that said basically astrology, the I Ching, and related things are claptrap. Yes. And I suggested to him that he take that out because one is he didn't really know what he was talking about and he was being biased. And two, a lot of his friends would be disappointed in him because they were doing research in those areas. And he took it out. So he had a hesitation about um, what later became probably new age psychology. And correctly, he had some reservations. But he also didn't have much experience and was honest enough to acknowledge that. That's beautiful. He always seemed conflicted. Like if you look at his um, college, he wrote a college essay on Emerson when he was 20 years old. Where he, yeah. he, I don't know if you ever saw that. Did you ever see that college essay he wrote? No. I'll, yep. I'll set it to you. It's fascinating because he talks about, he's conflicted. On the one hand, he, he believes that, you know, God, like these peak experiences, we don't need to claim, we don't need to give God credit. He said, why don't we give humans credit? Right. You know? right. And he seemed to have had one of these experiences when he was very young, and he admits it was very transformative for him. He said that in this 20-year-old essay, and I, I don't see him saying that ever, talking about that experience ever again, but he does talk about the importance no. of peak experience. So there was this very mystical side to him. There really was. But there was also this very skeptical side to him. And I think he was kind of, they were kind of fighting with each other within himself. Did you get that sense? It parallels the fight in psychology. Because remember, psychology comes out of William James, who was totally comfortable and as still the great essay on, on religious and mystical experience. But psychology looked around the university and saw where all the prestige was going and all the money was going. And it wasn't into philosophy. It wasn't into religious studies. It was into, quote, science, chemistry, physics, biology, etc. And psychology to this day is trying to look like those sciences. And those sciences do not actually believe that psychology has made it yet. Mm. So the, the psychological love of hard measurements and double-blind studies and brain imagery is still trying to take very much invisible abstractions and treat them the way physics treats uh, rare elements. So if you, if you go to a physicist and he says, oh, you study depression, what is depression? And then you talk for a while and he says, I didn't hear anything yet about what is depression. I heard opinions and speculations and notions. Can you say where is depression? No. Can you say does depression have any substantive reality outside of your definition, you say no. And then he says, is it true 
that you psychologists actually every five to 10 years change the definition of certain mental illnesses? And you say, uh, yes, we do. And he says, well, we actually don't change the names or the properties of any elements. And that's why you're not a science. And if I can just be kind of academically wonky for a moment, the argument began between Aristotle and Plato, where Aristotle said, you make up the world from what you see around you. And he did these encyclopedic works of, of birds and minerals and uh, trees. And Plato said, there's beyond those are forms, invisible forms that have no substance in the world, but manifest as all of these differences. So you see chairs, I see the form called chair from which all chairs descend. And that argument between the reality is only what you can see, sense, measure, etc., and reality is that which creates all of that you see, sense, and measure goes on today. Interesting. I mean, you know, returning back to the psychedelic experience for a second, it kind of evaporates those boundaries, right? It evaporates these kind of preconceived... Uh, it, exactly. It, it evaporates boundaries just as the ecologists do. Remember, we used to say we're going to save a species. And then we realized you can't save a species. You have to save the habitat, which might hold another thousand species, all of which are necessary for all of those thousand and one species to survive. That's a very interconnected way of looking at a situation. Psychology has a tendency to say, let's look at this individual and this individual and this individual. And most psychotherapy, if you think about it, is someone comes into an office and shuts the door and the psychotherapist is the only reality the psychotherapist knows about the patient is what the patient says. Yeah. So if the patient says, I'm married, and it turns out the patient is not married, it's just been living with someone, that will not perhaps ever come out. So the interconnectedness of people in their environment is something that clinical psychology has really not yet quite caught up with biology and ecology. Is this why you call it psychotelic therapy? I mean, you're trying to actually develop a new form of therapy, right? Yeah, well, in my careers, I was a psychotherapist. And what I realized is that I really had very little knowledge of whoever I was working with. And it was their worldview that I was working on, not really their world. And that's a huge difference. Yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that difference? Yeah. Yeah, which is that, uh, let's say I'm, I'm, as I was, I had undergraduates at Stanford who were all charming and bright and intense and interesting. And most of them were from pretty healthy backgrounds. But why was I seeing them? Well, I was seeing them often because there were stresses that they couldn't really work with because they didn't have the power. For example, someone says, you know, since I've come to Stanford, I am in, absolutely in love with medieval French literature. And I say, isn't that wonderful? You get to study what you love. And they say, my parents want me to go to medical school. And until I came to Stanford, that's all I thought I ever wanted. And now I see it was because it's only what they wanted. Yeah. And I say, do your parents want you to be happy or do they want you to go to medical school? And then I would look at the length of the pause and I would know a great deal about the family dynamics that the student himself may be unaware of. But as a psychotherapist, I wasn't able to deal with the parents who were the defining characteristic of what was making this person mentally not as healthy as he should have been. Yeah. It's a really neat way of looking so at it. So family therapy, for instance, you know, talks about the identified patient meaning the people the family have settled on to blame everything on. But family therapy says, no, 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 everyone is part of it. Well, and then the sociologist says, wait a moment, let's look at their economic situation. Uh, let's look at their neighborhood. Uh, let's look at their ethnic background and to what extent that's a pressure on them. And then the ecologist comes in and says, and they also live in a natural setting. I suspect if we replace their diet of bad food, that this entire family of mentally unhappy people would be a lot happier. So it ex you, you have to keep extending the boundary past the professional categorization of who's the helper. Yeah, I really like that 
Yeah, because we do create a lot of these artificial divisions that do get in the way of our growth. That's for yeah. sure. And if you go, say, if you look at Native American healing, there are certain healings where the person genuinely needs healing. But who comes to the healing is the entire clan, the entire family, the entire tribe. So everyone is there to, to be of support. And that's a very different feeling. So they're just different models. And there's nothing wrong with each model as long as it understands its limitations. Yeah, it's all about integration. And that includes, and that definitely includes psychedelics that also have this, we're the, you know, we are the truth and we are going to make the world entirely better, just as psychotherapy did and just as opioids did and so forth and so on. So we all have our limits. So I really appreciate you saying that. And, and I think if I may like resurrect what Mazo was saying in, in that meeting, I think Ooh, I that I think what he's because <laughs> I think I get him. I think I get what he was his his criticism. He he had a phrase he called unearned peaks. He was really railing against unearned peaks, and especially what he was saying yep. at Esalen and the kind of emphasis on the selfishness, uh, kind of using these things, these experiences, or using LSD to for personal development, kind of the expense of others. Right. In in right. that meeting itself, he said, and I think this is a funny phrase. In the preface to the new edition, I speak of the dangers of overemphasizing the mystical aspects of religion. Some people run the danger of turning away from the world and from other people to search for anything that will trigger peak experiences. This type of person represents the mystic gone wild. And I love that expression, the mystic gone wild. That's, I love it. He said, that's, right. he said that right, right there in the meeting. You were probably sitting right next to him. I don't know if you remember where you were sitting. No, that's, that's, I love it. It's kind of the mystic as hedonist. Yes. You know, there you are. That's what he was drunk on prayer. Yes. How dare you when there is an injustice in Correct. Syria? Correct. And that's yeah. what he didn't get. And I think he was trying to integrate, you know, the benefits, potential benefits of this kind of way of thinking, but integrating it with a sort of Bodha Shiva path, you know, a Buddhist sort of, I'm, right. probably, I'm probably not pronouncing that word right, but Bodhisattva path of enlightenment. Where, yeah. And yeah. Remember, the, Bodhi, the Bodhisattva says, I cannot go on to basically to pure enlightenment and no identity until everyone goes. Correct. And it's either a path of extreme service, and the, the phrase in Buddhism is all sentient beings. So probably rocks don't have to be enlightened. Um, right, right. But there's another way of looking at it, which is the Bodhisattva says, I'm actually part of everyone else. Think Jung collective unconscious in the West, mystical uh, reality in most systems. If I'm part of everyone else, then by definition, I can't go on until everyone else goes on. So it's not that I am such a, a good being, I'm just an honest and aware being. You know, it's as if your arm says, I think I'm going to get enlightened and leave. And the rest of your body says, honestly, we support your interests, but you're going to have to take the rest of us with you. So you agree with Maslow then on that? Over well, I don't think Maslow had, he, I'm, I'm thrilled he had a young mystical experience, yeah. but I don't think he fully understood the notion that improving oneself improves the world. And let me give you an example. I'm sitting in my house in California, and imagine that I have a coal-burning stove. And although it doesn't get very cold here, it's cold enough, so I use my stove and I burn coal. Now I stop burning coal. The air all over the planet just improved. Yeah. I can't divorce myself from the rest of the planet. So the notion, and there's a, it's, it's in lots of spiritual systems, is if you, and Ramdas actually said it last week, which is if you work on yourself, that will help others. If you work on others, that may or may not help others. No, I think the humanistic psychologists really, really did believe in that. Yeah. Remember, America has a very Puritan background that says you can't have anything good unless you work hard for it. Now, that's just a theory. And it's a theory that we know by all the evil rich people that we don't like that it's not true. <laughs> that lots of people get enormous benefits without doing anything to deserve it. But we have a feeling that that's somehow against the natural order. Yeah. And it turns out the natural order honestly doesn't care who's richer than someone else. Since the natural order says in, you know, in 50 to 80 years, you're all going to be dust and your property really isn't 
going to help you. I hear what you're saying. I think that there's a good criticism there in the sense, I, I think that the humanist psychologist very much, including Carl Rogers, really did believe that if we could help people become more integrated, that it would just naturally be better for the world. So I think they did believe that very much. I think I, I still like pinpointing what he really was around against that was what he was seeing at Esalen. You know, there's still uh, like a, and you see it today. I, I would criticize today. Some people over, you know, they'll, they'll go to like a yoga session or like a meditation session and think that they're enlightened because, you know, right. they're feeling better and they may ignore the real suffering around them. And I think that is a potential, potential danger. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the, you know, the idea that one can have enlightenment without compassion yeah. is what Maslow was, That's right. was, was leaning toward. And if you kind of get into the spiritual systems, they all agree with him. Yeah. That there's a false enlightenment where you say, I'm God. That's right. And then you say, and you say to them, am I God? And they say, no, you're not. And you say, you missed it. <laughs> <laughs> And there's a, a confrontation between Richard Alpert, who's now Ramdas, back from India. He's wearing, you know, a big brown dress and, and, and carrying a mala. And he visits his brother, who is wearing a Brooks Brothers suit and a, you know, $100 tie, but happens to be in an insane asylum. I know we don't call them that, but that's what they are. And the problem for the brother is that the brother thinks he, that he, the brother, is Christ. And they're kind of talking together and the brother says why is it that you're running around in sandals and a brown dress outside and you're considered sane and i am not considered sane <laughs> even though i'm a, a practical businessman with a and ramdas says he gently gets him to admit that although he never says it anymore in the institution he still kind of believes he's christ yeah and ramdas says you think you're christ and he says well yeah kind of and ramdas says am i christ and his brother says, of course not. And Ramdas says, that's why you're in the asylum, <laughs> which is the feeling of being enlightened, if it excludes other yeah. beings, is simply a step on the way. I just got to chill because that's a really profound And again, if you, and the traditions know this. Zen is full of this. It's called, you, know, you have an enlightenment experience, which means now you can settle down and do real work. It doesn't mean you're done and you can, you know, retire to a cloud. Yeah, you do see a lot of, I'm putting gurus in quotes, uh, who are really seem to be like, I'm done, I reached it, and now everything right. I say is gospel. And I think that's... that's right, sort of, and I'm yeah. charging you for that, right? Yes, <laughs> yeah, or please donate money to my cause, yeah. Oh, yeah, I've just finished a manuscript on the healthy multiplicity. We have a convention, which is the notion we're a single self, a kind of an assumption with very little evidence. And we have massive evidence that we shift into different cells. And these different cells are often quite different, have different agendas, have different opinions. And we've just written a book which makes it incredibly easy for people to see and understand that. And what we found is that when people acknowledge their own selves, they no longer demand consistency in other people. See, that's what drives a lot of psychology crazy, which is how do you explain serious inconsistency if one is a single unified self? And the answer is you can't. But if your inconsistency is you, you go into other selves, some healthy, some not as healthy, then it all makes sense. As we know, a very famous psychologist whose name I won't pronounce, but he developed the notion of being in flow for creativity. <laughs> yeah, chick sent me high. Yeah. <laughs> and we who are in the creative businesses, like writing books and so forth, understand entirely that feeling of being in flow. And what it is, is it's a self-shift into the self that is totally devoted to the work at hand and may miss meals, may have no sense of time, is quite different from our other self, which doesn't behave that way and really can't. And there's endless books of how to get into flow. There's also endless books about what do you do when you're, quote, triggered, which is get into a very negative self. So there's a thousand examples, and we're simply, my co-writer and I, Jordan Gruber, have just completed a manuscript which lays out the thousands of ways one can see it in the culture, because if it's true, it should be very evident.
And that's everything from David Bowie, who had lots of selves, to arguments within classical psychology, which includes Freud, who was a great proponent of selves, and then changed his mind. So he's both the hero and the villain of one part of our book. I would love to read this book. You know, evolutionary psychologists have argued we have multiple selves, sub-selves, that each have their own evolutionary goals. You'll come up with examples pretty easily. But if you think of it in psychotherapy, if your goal is to have people's selves harmonized and the ones that are troublesome helped, often they are ones who feel unheard and malnourished. It shifts the nature of the psychotherapeutic endeavor towards really easier success. And let me give you just one example of where psychotherapy is particularly poor. The research says that if you're an alcoholic, there's about a 2% success rate for psychotherapy. AA is about a, a one-third success rate and so forth. But 2% is really pretty pathetic. And the answer is very simple, which is anyone who's listened who's ever been drunk knows that in the morning you feel terrible. And also people often feel guilty because of how they've behaved or they don't even remember, meaning their self is cut off from the other self. So who goes to psychotherapy? Well, the one who wakes up, the one who feels bad, who feels guilty, who has hangovers. And the self that is the alcoholic that truly enjoys drinking and flirting and dancing on the table and throwing up in the street, that one doesn't come to therapy. <laughs> so it's not surprising that therapy doesn't work. Such a good point. Because if you said, well, I feel neurotic, and you say to your spouse, why don't you go to therapy? It's not going to work. So it's a rather radical reformulation of how we consider ourselves. Yeah, I love it. But, you know, the humans do have this great capacity for integration, though. We can, you know, like Jung's, the, the individuation process for Jung was all about accepting all sides of all the different selves that we exactly. have. Yeah. Exactly. And also yeah. knowing which self to be in, what, what we call being in the right mind at the right time. <laughs> being in the right mind, I like that. And, you know, yeah. And if you think about it, if you have parents who are living, when you go to be with them, you will shift into another self. Oh, yeah. And they, it turns out, will actually shift. At one point, I was visiting my mother. I was about 50. And my mother says to me, you know, you really need to put on a sweater. And I think, I'm a professor. I've gotten written books. I'm famous in a small way. I have a wife and children. I actually know when I need to put on a sweater. And I said to my stepfather, I said, how do you live with my mother? And he said, she's only like this when you're around. <laughs> and there was this wonderful moment of appreciating, and I didn't have the term then, the self-shift that she would get into when I would visit, and then being slightly more honest, the self-shift that I would probably get into when I was with her. And it suddenly made a lot of my relationships make more sense. Yeah, it does. It makes a lot of sense. And so it's important to acknowledge and understand that and kind of being more understanding and forgiving of ourselves, which then you're saying makes us more forgiving of others. And I really right. like that. You actually end up, because let's say you have a friend and suddenly your friend does something like cheats you. Right. And you say, I never realized he's a dishonest person. Right. Never going to talk to him again. Right. Rather than, wow, there's a part of him that's really dishonest. I have to be careful. Yeah. And as you can imagine, if you're in management, if you're in a relationship, suddenly the world, the world becomes a lot clearer when you take away, and this is where we started, if you take away the filter that distorts your vision. And one of the filters that distorts your vision is the totally wrong assumption that people are consistent for which you have never any evidence. You know, you kind of remind me of the whole personality debate in the 60s, 70s about is personality, is it consistent over time or how much is it influenced by right. the environment? And, and yeah, that's kind of been reconciled in the sense that there are some stable patterns, but we're just talking about patterns. And throughout the course of our day, we go in and out of, you know, no such thing as perfect consistency, but there's relative consistency. Like one person can be more relative. No, there's, there's yeah. consistency. There's consistency in situations. I mean, just look at very, a very normal as a stereotype, but someone who works hard all day and interacts with people and makes decisions and is productive and then comes home and sits in front of a television with cans of beer. Now, if you're 
an alien from another civilization, you know that this person has morphed into another being. Mm. But it looks to us very usual because what happens is people will self-shift when they get home. Yeah. And just as in almost any relationship with famous people, one of our colleagues, Arthur Dykeman, did a wonderful article on that there are no enlightened beings because if you talk to their wives, they'll say, nah, he's not enlightened. You should see him at home. He leaves the toilet seat up. And what they're saying is that our public self, which is very real, is different than our private self, which is equally real. Neither is phony. Neither is, you know, a role. It simply makes life easier. One of the reasons I wrote the book is because my wife and kids have asked me for 20 years, would I please do that? Because they all know it's made their lives more sane. Hmm. One thing that humanistic and transpersonal and cognitive and psychoanalytic all agree is it would be wonderful if using whatever tools we have, people could see the world more realistically and sanely because then they would make better decisions. Well, thank you for the pioneering work that you've done to help people reach that state. And thanks for chatting with me today. Well, I'm delighted that you called, that you asked, that you're doing (laughs) what you're doing. And I also found the book Ungifted uh, really a delight. Oh, I didn't know you read it. (laughs) And that you're doing, you know, that you're carrying the notion of brilliant minds, the inherent capacity of, of, of everyone to be more who they want to be. Yeah. And that, to use their parts or in my world, their selves, just more congruently and more with more health. It's just as we're very much in the same camp. And I love talking to you. Jim, I love it. I, I, I'm deeply honored by what you just said, by the way. And, you know, just so touched because I feel like there's this, a wavelength here of a similar spirit of, you know, how can we help people Yes, yes, we have different selves, but there is a most valued self. You know, I think all of us at the end of the day could kind of sit down and say, you know what, like, I think that this, these are some boundaries here of what, what I feel happiest and most moral or most operating in all cylinders. This is the self, you know, and I think, you know, we, we both want to help people kind of right. reach that state more consistently in a way. Well, I'm, I'm going to give anyone who's listening the easiest conceivable way to make their life work. Because they all know it already. It's called, when you're really upset, count to 10. (laughs) Now, you think, what on earth is that for? (laughs) Okay. When you count to 10, you literally self-shift down. You're not going to downshift into a calmer self that is better able to handle the situation. We all know it. Simply calling it cells makes it more uh, easier to see why it works so well. And I think we all like that person better. I think we could yep. probably all agree. You know, it's funny. A lot, there's some really fascinating research coming out showing by Nina Strominger and others showing that what we all mean by our real self is really our moral self. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. 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 The idea that there's a false self right. is kind of nonsense. It's nonsense. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like people say, well, I'm, I'm not myself today. <laughs> and I say, well, who are you? <laughs> and it turns out it's somebody who is in the same body and has the same name, the same driver's license. But it's a, it is a different self. They're right. Yeah. You know, I can't imagine what got into me. You know, <laughs> yeah. Of course yeah. you can't, because that's a different self, of course. <laughs> but, you know, so, that, enough of that. Yeah, enough of that. But, but there is something. We, we can still save the real self notion and put it in modern day parlance. You know, it's just it's our valued self. It's our moral self. It's, this, yeah, it's, yeah, it's the self we like the best yes, of ourselves. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I love it. But also that shifts because the one who's a whiz at the office or is a gifted professor, you don't want that one to be who's playing with your three-year-old. Why is that? Because the one who's playing with your three-year-old really behaves differently. Oh, right. right, right. um, Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Okay. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) I got you. I I think I took what you said too literally. (laughs) Like you want a different person. You're saying you want want a different self. Herschel Walker, who... Yeah, Herschel Walker is this fan, fantastic uh, football player. He's also danced ballet. He's got a huge company. And what he says is you don't want Herschel, football, Herschel, the football player, to come and be your babysitter. Right. I love it. 
So, you know, maybe, so, we, yeah. you know, so, we're, so maybe we can both, you know, we're working towards making a world where people are more flexible and free to be the right, right. in the right, as you said, be in the right mind at the right time. I love it. Thanks yep. again for chatting with me today. Okay. Well, you can have it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like giving credit. I really appreciate that. Well, have a great day and thanks okay, for chatting with me. Thank you. And I, I love finding out what Maslow and I said way back then <laughs> and how close we were to where we still are. Yeah, I will continue giving you uh, stuff, little nuggets that I find about that. So thanks. I'm, del I'm delighted. Okay. Okay. So, have a good day. You too. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.